The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Breaking overnight, Disney shocking Wall Street, ousting Bob Chapek as CEO as Bob Iger retakes the top job once again. COVID crisis in China, the country reporting its first pandemic-related deaths in almost six months, sparking renewed fears of restrictions and lockdowns. New revelations at FTX, exposing its massive liabilities and the billions, billions it owes to clients and creditors. Plus, back in the fold as Elon Musk reverses two high-profile Twitter suspensions with mixed results. And then later on, New estimates this week on the holiday travel outlook and just how many people are taking to the roads for Turkey Day. It's Monday, November 21st, 2022. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning and welcome to the show. I'm Dominic Chewin for Brian Sullivan today. Let's kick off your Monday morning with a check on U.S. equity futures. They're relatively muted. After a big week for Wall Street last week, this morning right now, the Dow Jones futures implying a opening bell of about down 93 points. The S&P 500 implied lower by roughly 18 to 19 points and the Nasdaq down by 72. So marginal to fractional losses implied at the opening bell. If you check on the bond market, we are seeing some moves there, but not significantly to the upside. The 10-year benchmark Treasury note yield still just above 8, 3.8%, 3.83% the last trade there. The two-year Treasury note yield 4.53% and the 30-year long bond actually ticking lower in yield, about 3.92%. In energy, oil falling below 80 bucks per barrel, down two weeks in a row. Currently, U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate, or WTI crude, $79.71. That's down 37 cents, or about one-half of 1%. Three-quarter percent declines for ice Brent crude futures, the world benchmark gauge, currently sitting at $87.01. In cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin prices are easing a little bit more, but still hovering right around that 16,000 level that many traders are eyeing right now. Bitcoin price is currently $16,094.30. That's down about 2.5%. 4.5% declines for Ethereum, currently sitting at $1,120.87. A quick check now on the overnight action in Asia and the early trading in Europe. Jumana Bersecchi, as you can see, is standing by in our London newsroom with the latest there. Good Monday morning, Jumana. Morning, Dom. Well, the mood from Asia is pretty negative overnight. So you can see all of the major indices behind me are trading in the red. Shanghai down about four-tenths of a percentage point. Hang Seng, the tech-heavy index, down to 1.9 percentage points. COVID concerns yet again front and center here. Beijing's biggest district has ordered people to stay at home today. Guangzhou has also announced a five-day lockdown in, mo- in its most populous district. 
And also Beijing has just announced it will tighten testing requirements for inbound travelers entering into this city. So again, some concerns about COVID and the impacts they're going to have. Kospi, you can see South Korea also down one percentage points on weaker exports. As for European markets, well, this is all translating to a weaker picture here as well. Pretty much all of these bourses are trading in the negative. FTSE 100 down about a tenth of a percentage point. Some of the miners like Antefagasta, Glencore, any basic resources firm that has exposure to China and commodities trading in the red. Zetradax down four tenths of a percentage point. This despite better than expected producer, P, producer price index of so PPI numbers coming in at 35% year on year versus expectations of 41 percentage points year on year. So those numbers are beginning to move in the right direction, Dom, but still at very elevated levels. All right, John, present you with the latest there on the market action in Europe and Asia. Thank you very much. Now to that breaking news and a shocking leadership shakeup at Disney. Silvana Hinao is here with those details. Silvana. Dom, yeah, shocking it is. Walt Disney's board announcing late last night CEO Bob Chapek is out. It's reappointing Bob Iger as chief executive effective immediately. Now, the move marks the end of a tumultuous nearly three-year tenure by Chapek and comes mere months after the board unanimously agreed to give him a contract extension. Just days ago, Chapek announced plans to cut costs at the media giant, including hiring freezes and layoffs as it grapples with the surging cost of its Disney Plus streaming service and weakening economic conditions. Chapek's tenure at the helm of Disney has been a rocky one. The company's stock is down 30 percent since he was named CEO in late February 2020, and he's faced a number of controversies since. Now, just weeks after his appointment, Disney was forced to close its theme parks due to the pandemic. In October of that year, Disney announced a major reorganization of its media and entertainment divisions to put a bigger focus on its streaming ambitions. Now, in July of 2021, Disney was sued by actress Scarlett Johansson over its streaming release of her Black Widow movie. And in March of this year, Disney and Chapek clashed with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis over the state's so-called Don't Say Gay bill. In June, the company abruptly fired its TV content chief, Peter Rice, amid apparent tensions with Chapek. And then earlier this month, Disney reported misses for fourth quarter profit and key revenue segments, warning that streaming growth could thin. In a statement, newly appointed CEO Bob Iger says he's thrilled to return and extremely optimistic about Disney's future. Iger led Disney for 15 years, overseeing the acquisitions of Pixar, Lucasfilm, Marvel and Fox's entertainment businesses, as well as overseeing the launch of Disney+. Disney's board says Iger will work as CEO for two years in a bid to set a strategic direction for renewed growth and to work closely with the board to find a successor, Dom. All right, Sylvan Hinao, we're just showing now the chart uh, showing uh, under Bob Chapek's tenure, Disney has lost about a quarter of its value. And Mm -hmm. by the way, over the last year, we're down about 41 percent. But currently, those shares are up about 8 to 9% in the pre-market right. trade. So we'll, we'll be keeping keep an it, eye on it. We'll keep an eye on it for sure. Absolutely. So, Hinao, thank you very much you for that. It. Back on Wall Street now. Stocks looking to start the week lower ahead of another batch of retail earnings and a shortened trading week due to the Thanksgiving holiday. You got Best Buy, Dick's Sporting Goods, Nordstrom, Deer, all set to report numbers before Thanksgiving as investors look for signs of a potential peak in inflation or a consumer slowdown into that all-important holiday shopping season. So joining me now is Benjamin Lau, Chief Investment Officer at Aprium Advisors, a member of this year's CNBC Financial Advisor 100 list. Uh, We've been featuring, Ben, a a lot of you folks out there on the financial advisory side because we want to know 
what clients are thinking about the current market and what the outlook is. So maybe the big first question to you is, is this a market that makes you fearful or optimistic? Well, right now, they're short-term. We're a little bit cautious right now. We think the market is probably pricing too optimistic of a Powell pivot soon. So we think right now, probably is a good time to short some cash balances for many of our retired clients. Now, when you say short cash balances, you mean solidify them, maybe even build them, get that dry powder, so to speak. Where exactly are you raking some of that money, the cash? What are you selling to kind of raise those levels for down the line when an, a better opportunity arises? Well, because so many of our clients do take out money for living expenses, we're taking money out of the, some of these high beta technology names, shorting them into cash, U.S. treasuries, even some uh, investment-grade bonds. So if that's the case, if it's treasuries and investment-grade bonds that you're kind of raking some of this money into, what exactly does that mean then about what you're looking for before that cash gets redeployed again? Well, I'm looking for earnings to really come down a little bit more, right? We still haven't seen an earnings recession in the S&P 500, right? Earnings are still relatively solid up until now. So that P.E. is still relatively high. And if that, if that E is going to come down even more, P.E.s can even rise even higher. So that's what we're looking for. We're waiting for earnings to settle down in the market before really jumping back into the risk side of things. Is there a, a you mentioned technology, the high beta, more high volatility names that you are a, a little less attracted to these days. What exactly then, if, if you were to put a shopping list together, what, what goes on it right now? What parts of the market do you find could be more opportunistic in this current environment? Well, look what you're seeing earnings, right? Look where you're seeing revenue growth and earnings growth in, in, in the S&P 400. Right now, the, the name continues to be energy. Energy is still the hot sector. And as long as oil prices remain elevated, I think a lot of these uh, American frackers can still print money. Right. They really brought down their cost of capital, the restructures of their balance sheets. And I think they're extremely profitable enterprises. Other things we're looking at are, are, are companies that are really exposed to the CapEx cycle. Right. CapEx is still uh, remains strong, surprisingly. So businesses continue to spend to really earn the extra middle incomes. Now, you mentioned before the bond trade. I'm looking at two year Treasury note yields, the shorter duration, shorter maturity side of things that are currently yielding around 4.5% or thereabouts. Meanwhile, you've got 10-year Treasury note yields that are currently just around maybe 3.8%. The yield curve remains inverted, those short-term rates higher than, than long-term ones. How attractive is it for you and your clients to be putting money into the short-term Treasury side of things because it is yielding so much more than other parts of the yield curve? Yeah, well, there's different ways to take that, right? In the short term, yes, treasuries are short term treasuries are a great place to be for that short term spending kind of cash needs. But when you look at a little bit longer term, you can look at a little more credit credit plays, right? Uh, investment grade bonds, even high yield bonds are looking a little more attractive because the yield to worse are coming up so quickly. All right, Benjamin Lau and Aprium, thank you very much. We appreciate it, sir. Thanks, Dominic. When we come back on the show, much more on Disney's shocking CEO shakeup and what it means for a stock that's gone. Nowhere but down in recent months. Also, more fallout as FTX looks to make good with creditors owed more than $3 billion. Plus, a closer look at holiday travel and what could be a record-breaking week. A record-breaking week. We've got a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this commercial break. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? 
Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. It's going to cost even more to go over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house this year. AAA estimates more than 54 million people will travel over the Thanksgiving holiday, or about 98% of pre-pandemic levels. Now, while the price of gasoline, airfares, and hotel rooms are down from the record highs hit earlier this year, they are still near the highest levels ever for this time of year. So for some help navigating all of it, let's bring in Brian Kelly, the founder of The Points Guy. We'll just call him The Points Guy because that's what everyone calls him. So Brian Kelly... I know because I have already planned, or I have over the last few weeks here, I, I have multiple trips under my belt this fall. I've already planned another trip in December before the holiday, before Christmas. Everything is costing a little bit more, but just how much more is it going to cost this year? You know, if you're a procrastinator like me, you're probably going to get hit pretty hard. We were seeing prices up 35%. Uh, when compared to 2019 levels. And yet we're still not uh, above the 2019 traffic level. So there are still going to be a little bit less uh, people traveling, but the prices are simply staggering, especially in those leisure markets. I I, I was looking at Las Vegas and there was a $3,000 one-way business class ticket. I've never seen fares like that. So it's not everywhere, but prices are definitely up. Now, business class is fancy. I'm more of a coach economy kind of guy. And even those tickets are, are, are getting more expensive right now. Uh, my trip is to Florida next month. It's, it's already costing me quite a bit more. I, I wonder, though, is it because and this is just anecdotally. So I, you, you obviously are the expert here. I, I often see that my flights are changing a lot even before I take off. They're getting rescheduled. I've heard other people say that they have been booked on flights that have been canceled. How much are airlines dealing with the logistical nightmare right now going to this holiday season? And is that the reason why, part of the reason why we're seeing prices go higher? You are, because what we're seeing is uh, flights will be completely sold out in advance uh, because airlines have cut the schedule. You know, American has cut around 16 percent of their schedule in preparation for this busy holiday travel period. You know, this week, Thanksgiving is starting early. And that's one of the key trends we've seen with COVID is people are traveling longer uh, and earlier. So this holiday travel season is going to be long and extended for the industry. And the issue is they still have crew issues. You know, COVID, fingers crossed, there's not a massive outbreak this year like we had Omicron last year, but there's still a lot of hurdles. And of course, weather will be the biggest thing that could throw everything uh, into, into chaos. But so far this week is looking good. Now, Brian, we, we've heard a lot about, you know, stories about what the best time is to, to, to book airfares, when you want to buy those tickets and whatnot. Tips and tricks now. As we head into this season, if we are slightly procrastinating about this, when should we be booking flights and what types of routes are, are, are maybe more attractive than others? Yeah, I would just say as far in advance as possible. I'm already booking my spring break travel. Uh, Europe is still on sale. You know, the U.S. dollar is really strong. So I know I've talked to a lot of families who generally go to Florida on those uh, school breaks in the spring and they're seeing outrageous prices. But 
uh, Europe is on sale. So it's really about choosing the right destination, but generally book in advance as possible. I use Google flights. It will let you be flexible. If you can change your dates by one or two days, often you can save a lot of money. So it's not like there's one day of the week where the cheap fares are. You've got to constantly monitor. And when you see something good, book quickly. All right. Brian Kelly, the points guy on the tips and tricks this holiday travel season. Thank you very much. Good luck. Thanks. All right. Still on deck for the show. China's COVID crisis hitting a fever pitch as fears of new lockdowns and restrictions send investors fleeing yet again. We've got a live report from Beijing coming up when Worldwide Exchange returns after this break. Today's big number, 20%. That's how much capital spending among S&P 500 companies is expected to grow this year, according to data by S&P Dow Jones Indices. Total capital spending is set to top $200 billion in the third quarter alone. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange to a developing story this morning. Chinese equities are under pressure again after the country reported its first COVID-19 related deaths in nearly six months as case counts reach their highest level since April. Amid fears of new lockdowns and restrictions, Chinese consumer stocks are getting hit the hardest overnight. You've got names like Sands China, Alibaba, Yum Brands China, all down sharply, as you can see there. Let's now bring in Eunice Yoon for the latest there on China's COVID lockdowns possibly happening again. Uh, uh, Eunice, I wonder, is this a situation where the government gets even more strict this time around? That's what a lot of people are worried about. Uh, Beijing's largest district has been an effective shutdown since the weekend, uh, with uh, most uh, businesses shut and schools online. And this is after cases uh, reached about 2,000 in the capital in the past two days and reported its first Uh, The city reported its first three deaths in the past six months. So uh, the situation is even worse in um, export hub Guangzhou, which reported nearly 9,000 new infections. Now, the city reported a five-day lockdown for its most populous district and also uh, what they describe as a silent mode, which is an effective shutdown for much of the rest of the city. Now, a lot of people uh, watching might be wondering how this all works with the fact that the government here had made an announcement saying that they're going to have a much more targeted approach, what they call optimizing the zero COVID policy. In fact, the National Health Authority again reiterated that mass testing today needed to be much more targeted. And state media has been reiterating that same mantra, saying that uh, the um, solution should avoid a one size fits all approach. Now, what investors need to understand, though, is how this contradictory messaging is playing itself out locally. So locally, the decision-making is being devolved into the hands at a very, very, very ground level. And uh, the problem is that a lot of the people on the ground want to appear as though they are sticking unwaveringly to zero COVID, but at the same time, they uh, don't want to have to deal with um, what they're, you know, all, all of these, uh, uh, they, they want to also appear that they're uh, hitting the, the, the new precise approach. So because of that, it just plays itself out to a much more chaotic policy. Dom? 
Uh, one of the big points over the last, call it year to even two years now in the U.S., was this idea that vaccination is what kind of helps bring you back out of this, that the more people that get vaccinated, the, the, the less economic damage there will be. Just take us through what exactly is the vaccination profile in China right now? Are, are, are the majority of people vaccinated? Uh, where are the vulnerable groups? Uh, what exactly is that? And, and how can that possibly in some ways hypothetically help maybe ease some of these zero restriction type environments? Well, officially, the vaccination rate is in the 90 percentile range, uh, whereby the government says that most people have had at least one shot. Uh, the problem is when you get to the elderly. So people who are the, over the age of 80, it's somewhere in the 60 percent range officially. Uh, but um, the problem is that uh, we don't really know um, how effective some of those vaccines have been, um, whether or not they're the right ones to uh, be effective against Omicron. And so uh, that's uh, one thing that a lot of people here are, are concerned about. And the fact that those three deaths happened, and this was an 87-year-old man, the other two were in their 80s. It was just another reminder of how ill-prepared uh, the population is from a medical level and also uh, um, maybe from a mental level, because the messaging has been that, zero, that COVID is just so dangerous. All right, Eunice Yoon, live in Beijing with the latest there on China's COVID crackdown. Uh, thank you very much. Straight ahead on the show, what the FTX failure could mean for the future of innovation and adoption in cryptocurrencies. Plus, Chapek is out and Iger is back in at Disney. Quite the turn of events since Iger spoke with CNBC's own David Faber just about one year ago. Worldwide Exchange is back after this. It shouldn't be a concern to Disney shareholders at all that uh, you know, that that, uh, that any dynamic between us is, would have an impact on the company long term. I'm leaving. He's in. It's his company. He's going to manage it as he see fit. He sees fit with the board under circumstances that are very different than existed when I was CEO and, and chairman because they're changing as we've talked. They're changing so rapidly, and um, you know he'll make his own decisions. And I, you know I hope that. He's learned le good lessons, I believe that he has, in terms of um, you know, some of the things that I did along the way and what worked and what didn't work. And I think the, the relationship I have with him is not really relevant to you know, how, he, how effective he is running the company. The stock market push to bounce back after a losing week is looking in question. Futures pointing right now to a lower start to the holiday shortened trading week. Breaking overnight, a massive C-suite shakeup at Disney, with Bob Chapek being replaced as CEO by his predecessor, Bob Iger. And taking the Fed's foot off the gas pedal, one central bank head says he's on board with slowing the pace of rate hikes in the Fed's bid to quash inflation. It's Monday, November 21st. You are watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Dominic Chewin for Brian Sullivan this morning. Let's kick off this half hour with a look at U.S. equity futures. They are on the offer, but not by much. The Dow is implied lower right now, as you can see, by roughly 102 points. The S&P implied lower by just about 20 points. And the Nasdaq down by about 90, 91 points right now. So, yes, 
losses, but they are fractional for the time being implied at the opening bell. Let's also hit oil prices, which are lower again today. U.S. benchmark prices still below that $80 barrel, $80 per barrel mark. West Texas Intermediate, $79.65 off one half of 1%. A similar-ish percentage decline for ice Brent crude futures. The world benchmark gauge, $87.04 right now. Let's get a check on some of this morning's top stories. Silvana Hinao is here with those. Hi, Silvana. Dom, hi. Good morning. The, the Atlanta, Fed, uh, Atlanta Fed president is suggesting he's in favor of starting to slow the central bank's pace of interest rate increases. Speaking over the weekend, Rafael Bostic said he is ready to move away from three-quarter of point rate hikes at the Fed's December policy meeting. Bostic adding he feels the Fed's target policy rate doesn't need to rise more than another percentage point to tackle inflation. He noted the Fed should guard against any temptation to cut rates before inflation is on track to fall to the central bank's 2 percent target, even if the economy weakens. Former President Trump says he has no interest in returning to Twitter after owner Elon Musk reinstated his account. Musk making the decision after polling users on the platform. Trump says he will instead stick with his social media platform, Truth Social. The former president, not the only high-profile account being reinstated on Twitter. Kanye West tweeting yesterday, testing, testing, seeing if my Twitter is unblocked. Twitter confirmed last month that West had been locked out of his account due to a violation of unspecified Twitter policies after the rapper posted a series of anti-Semitic tweets. And Simon & Schuster's owner says it will let its more than $2 billion sale to Penguin Random House fall apart. According to multiple reports, Paramount Global won't try to appeal a recent ruling that blocked the deal with a formal announcement happening sometime this week. The judge in the matter ruling last month the merger would reduce competition. The reports at Paramount will receive a $200 million breakup fee from Penguin's parent company, as a result of the deal falling apart, Dom. All right, Silvana Hanel with the latest headlines. Thank you very much. To that breaking news now around Disney and the company's board announcing late last night that CEO Bob Chapek is out. And it was reappointing Bob Iger into that CEO role. The move marking the end of a tumultuous nearly three-year tenure by Chapek faced with a number of controversies and a sagging stock price. Those shares, by the way, down about 30% since he took over as CEO back in February of 2020, right before the depths of the pandemic. Now, in a statement, newly appointed CEO Bob Iger says he's, quote-unquote, thrilled to return and, quote-unquote, extremely optimistic about Disney's future. Disney's board says Iger will work as CEO for two years in a bid to set a strategic direction for renewed growth and to work closely with the board to find an eventual successor. For more on this, let's bring in Alex Barker, global media editor with the Financial Times. Alex, this is a shock, only because we thought Bob Iger, I mean, he's been so iconic and so associated with Disney. Why, why turn back to him in the absence of Bob Chapek? Well, my colleagues on the Lex column at the FT described it as the return of the Jedi. And uh, it, it, it feels like as big a surprise as that. Um, you know, Disney's about magic. It always has been. And Bob Chapek got the theme parks running, but he never had that kind of special touch uh, that a CEO needs sometimes. And you could feel the loss of confidence uh, around Disney, uh, within his top management team, with the creative community. And 
eventually with investors as well as they began to miss numbers and it spiraled into a position where it looked irretrievable for JPEG and um, the only man to turn to was Bob Iger. You know, Alex, earlier this hour, we showed a, a timeline, if you will, with a number of what, what many will call missteps by Bob Chapek, as you point out, over the course of his tenure here, including clashes with the Florida government and Governor Ron DeSantis there about LGBTQ rights and issues. We've also had some uh, big executive departures and firings during that time. But of course, the big one is COVID-19 and the lockdowns. I mean, he started in February of 2020. Is Bob Chapek, was he just playing the hand that he was dealt? Is this the best that he could do, given what, given what happened over the last two years? I, I don't think he's lost this job because of the, the pandemic or indeed the economic downturn. All media has suffered. It's been more in his handling of smaller episodes through this period, starting with the reorganization of Disney itself, has created a lot of discontent within the company. And then those relationships with stakeholders that are vital to how Disney operates. I mean, the creative community in, in Hollywood, Scarlett Johansson, was a, a kind of reflection of how that had become more strained. And that sense that the, that the creative engine at the heart of Disney wasn't quite a firing as it should be. Uh, and then Florida was in another important moment, both for Disney staff and for Disney itself, because Florida is such an important operating um, unit for them. Uh, and so as a CEO, you can only have so many missteps uh, before you reach a point where your top management team isn't pulling in the same direction as you. And uh, I think Chapek had reached that point. All right. So, so the board obviously lost confidence in, in Bob Chapek as the CEO. Now, in that mm. kind of statement in the release, we get an idea now. The board is looking to keep Iger on for two years. He will set the strategic direction for the company and maybe more importantly, find his eventual successor. You, Alex, had mentioned that you're looking for the it factor, that magic factor in a CEO that Bob Iger had. Who then would then fill those shoes when he has to find an eventual successor? So that's a very big question. Disney, uh, for decades, uh, has been singularly awful uh, at its succession policy. Um, even back to the to the Eisner days, it's it, they've found it very hard to replace uh, iconic CEOs, and and no one is more iconic in the history of Disney uh, than Bob Iger. It's going to be um, front of his mind because I think in terms of his legacy, one of his biggest failings was being able to. Uh, run a, a, a good succession process and, and anoint someone who who will uh, be a, a steady hand on the tiller. So this is going to be a big thing for Bob Iger. Who emerges? Uh, uh, I, I have absolutely no idea. Quite a few people were groomed by Bob Iger while he was at the top of Disney, only to find they were dropped uh, at the last moment. So I suspect there'll be quite a beauty parade uh, of media executives who who want this role. But all of them will have uh, in the back of their mind that concern that Bob Iger was never really able uh, to let go, that Disney was just too uh, important for him. And you can see that relationship with Chapek sour pretty quickly. Uh, and I think anyone coming in will want to know that not only do they have the confidence of the board and of Iger 
uh, as a successor, but the Iger will step back uh, and won't be um, backseat driving, as I think Chapek would have uh, right. thought he would be doing. Big shoes to fill, like goofy big size shoes to fill there. Alex yeah. Barker at the FT. Thank you very much for the update there. Thank we you. appreciate it. To another developing story this morning and the price of Bitcoin extending its November losses this morning yet again, hovering right around that key $16,000 mark. This as investor confidence continues to get tested. The latest of the, of course, is the shocking collapse of FTX and its founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, SBF as he's known. In bankruptcy filings late yesterday, the firm revealing it and SBF's other businesses owe more than $3 billion to their 50 largest creditors, with one, the biggest one, being owed more than $200 million each. Now, Wall Street remains split on the near-term future of this industry overall, with some calling for a massive systemic failure in the coming weeks or months. And others, like Pershing Square CEO Bill Ackman, saying this latest catastrophic failure is more like growing pains for something that could, quote, greatly benefit society and grow the global economy. So let's parse through this. Joining me now is Wall Street correspondent at The Economist, Alice Fullwood. Alice, this week's issue of The Economist deals with this very issue. So what exactly is the debate and can you frame the current state of play for us? Of course, yes. So on the cover this week, we put crypto's downfall uh, as our cover image. And the debate uh, in our pages was about whether or not this sort of latest and greatest failure in crypto sort of really marked the beginning of the end. And it's, it is a difficult question, as you pointed out in your sort of intro. People are split. You know, there are a lot of people that think this is sort of one domino that's fallen, that's going to sort of topple over a lot of other dominoes within crypto and sort of eventually lead to the unwinding of a lot of institutional interest and sort of customer embrace, regulatory sort of embrace of crypto over the past few years and essentially sort of you know, undermine the technology's ability to do sort of anything that, that it's promised that it will do. And, you know, one of the points that we make is that crypto has been around for an awfully long time now. It's sort of not a novel and emerging technology. Bitcoin is 14 years old. And really, it, the underlying promise of the technology doesn't have a huge amount to show for it yet. And so the case that the sort of uh, the bullish uh, uh, crypto people make that, you know, you just have to keep sort of hanging on, uh, ignore the scams, sort of ignore the the failures and Bitcoin and crypto's promise will be sort of realized eventually is becoming harder and harder to stack up. Now, now Alice, th there have been uh, numerous times over the course of the relatively short life of cryptocurrencies compared to other asset classes, a precedent in the past about large scale drops. Right. And, and, and kind of flush outs there. We've seen Bitcoin prices in the thousands of dollar range, not in the tens of thousands of dollar range before. What exactly is the sense that you're getting through the reporting that you've done about whether or not there is a bigger flush, so to speak, downward in cryptocurrency prices and, how, and just how big could it get? Yeah, so if you look at the sort of big uh, catastrophes that have happened this year in crypto, you know, in May it was the the Terra Luna cycle, uh, the Terra Luna stablecoin failing, that sort of wiped about thirty percent off uh, Bitcoin and, and crypto prices. Then it was the sort of liquidation of of Three AC and other uh, financial firms uh, in June. Now you have the failure of FTX, which again has taken sort of another uh, sort of twenty percent, twenty five percent off uh, Bitcoin and crypto prices. So. 
I think it's pretty clear throughout the year that you these sort of big failures tend to beget um, big sell-offs in crypto. And the question is just how many other institutions is FTX going to take out? As you mentioned uh, in the beginning, it has a lot of very large creditors. A lot of those creditors are big crypto institutions, and many of them seem to now be struggling. You know, the failure of FTX has already taken out a sort of handful of smaller exchanges, um, and it seems to have put pressure on uh, the Gemini uh, lending group. Um, and it's sort of owner, the digital currency group is sort of a very big crypto player that people are now looking at for sort of potential contagion effects. So there definitely seems, you know, it took us sort of six months to sort of get to the FTX failure from the last failure in crypto as everything sort of was was unwound and, and worked out uh, in that company. It might take, you know, more time for us to see the sort of full ripple effects of FTX failing. But the sense definitely is that there's no way that a, a player this big could fall without there being sort of enormous amounts of collateral damage. OK, and before we let you go, what, what do you think right now is the biggest uh, a, a bullish case? Right. Is there one to be made that there is a bounce to be bought for crypto investors out there or, or is the narrative just so predominantly negative? Yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of whether or not you should should buy crypto today or, or, or tomorrow, I don't know that I'm sort of uh, uh, best place to sort of opine on that kind of like day to day uh, uh, financial advice. But, you know, there is this sort of underlying promise of the technology. I think that actually, you know, in behind the scenes of these sort of huge failures, um, the people working on the sort of blockchain layer and the application layer of sort of various blockchains like Ethereum, um, they are improving it all the time. There was a sort of huge upgrade that went through Ethereum's uh, blockchain sort of earlier this year that made it uh, sort of pave the way for it to become more efficient for, for all the stuff that people want to build on top of blockchains uh, to, to be realized. And so I do think they're sort of the, the the really bullish case for me is that some sort of very compelling use case emerges that pulls the attention in crypto away from the financial stuff. So it's away from from the exchanges and speculation sure. and, and that kind of stuff. So there is a there is a bullish case. Uh, I think it's about the technology and I think we'll have to wait and see. All right. Alice Fuller at The Economist with the latest on the state of play in crypto. Thank you very much. Coming up on the show, the World Cup officially kicking off as controversy swirls around the global event. What that could mean for all the billions tied to the major soccer showdown. All that story when the Worldwide Exchange returns after this commercial break. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. The 2022 World Cup kicking off yesterday with the host nation, Qatar, falling to Ecuador 2-0. Controversy following the tournament since FIFA awarded the Arab nation that tournament, this tournament, back in 2010. From the country's human rights record to the last-minute ban of alcohol in the stadiums that happened just this past week. Still, hundreds of millions of people worldwide are expected to watch the games on TV and bet on the action as well. The American Gaming Association estimates more than 20 million adults in the U.S. will wager around $1.8 billion on the World Cup. So let's talk more about this with Patrick Risch. He's the director of sports business over at Washington University in St. Louis, also the CEO of Sports Impacts. Patrick, we turn to you for the business case and the investing angle for all of these things. So take us through just how big of a deal the World Cup betting angle is, say, in the context of the NFL. Well, Dom, it's really interesting when you look at the context and the ratios. So, you know, the NFL this past year in, in SoFi, there was roughly $7.6 billion bet on that game by, by you know, American bettors. And if you look at the numbers on a per better basis, 
roughly $240 per gambler for the Super Bowl, only about $88 per gambler forecasted for this World Cup here in the United States. And I think a big part of this, Dom, is there's just simply more action, if you will, during a football game. There's more things to bet on. There's more side bets, betting lines throughout the game. Who's going to score first? Who's going to have the most passing yards, rushing yards? You don't have as many things to bet on necessarily within a particular soccer match. And that's part of the reason why that handle, the dollars bet for Super Bowls, is just so much more voluminous than you see for soccer. So, so Patrick, it, it, one of the other business stories around this was that, uh, I mean, last minute, but maybe unforeseen ban of alcohol, when you have one of the biggest sponsors of world soccer out there as Anheuser-Busch InBev, the biggest brewer in the world, what exactly happened? How exactly can you have a World Cup and then not have one of your biggest sponsors feel like they got the most out of their advertising dollar? And, Dom, you better believe that here in St. Louis, people will talk about that quite a bit with Budweiser being in our backyard. Well, you know, absolutely. This is certainly a, 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 you know, a, a blow that no one expected. But as we saw during the pandemic, there are ways for make goods. And so I suspect that this is going to give Budweiser tremendous bargaining leverage going forward. Not only the number of commercials that they may get during telecast during this World Cup, but in anything that is FIFA related between now and 2026, when the World Cup comes to the United States, Mexico, and Canada, you better believe that Budweiser is going to use this moment to leverage more make goods, more more digital ads, more in-stadium advertising, more commercials during any FIFA related event between now and 2026, and also during the 2026 World Cup here in the States and North America. All right. So, Patrick, before we let you go, how likely or how much do you think? First of all, there's no doubt there's a lot of money in the Middle East and no doubt that sports has become a beneficiary of a lot of that Middle East money. But how likely is it that FIFA and world soccer are going to want to go back to the Middle East, seeing exactly what's happened so far with this World Cup in Qatar? Well, it reminds me of the old line from the movie Animal House, and my students will not get this because they're too young, but the the old John Blutarski GPA of 0.0. That's the probability that they're going back, certainly to to Qatar and potentially to the the Middle East. I mean, there's been so many issues, the human rights issues. We've already seen some contentious behavior between some of the players, the soccer federations, and FIFA threatening yellow cards if players or uh, organizations speak out wearing certain patches during matches. This is really, uh, it's really been kind of a mess. Now we all hope that the soccer is good, but at the end of the day, with the, obviously the, the scandal of how this World Cup eventually got to Qatar in the first place, Dom, there's just been so many things that I think this has left a very bad taste in many people's mouths. I don't expect it coming back to the Middle East anytime soon. All right, Patrick Rich with the latest there on the World Cup. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Tom. On deck for the show, Patrick Frizzetti lays out the trading week ahead and the key sectors he says are high on his radar. We'll be right back after this. Let's get more on the trading week ahead and bring in Patrick Frizzetti, managing director and partner at Rose Advisors at Hightower. Uh, Patrick, this is an environment right now with a holiday-shortened week where people are maybe a little bit more uncertain about what to do ahead of that holiday What exactly is the market telling you right now? Well, when I look at some of the indicators, I mean, we saw recently the PPI data 
was a little bit softer than expected. I think that would, um, you know, agree with some of the core CPI numbers we saw earlier in the month. Um, but, you know, I look at things like existing home sales. Existing home sales were down 6% in October, um, but more importantly, the the unaffordability. You know, 28% uh, of, of housing purchases were from first-time home buyers. And, you know, that's the fourth straight month where it's been below 30%. Uh, that's an interesting indicator for us. I think there's still some some weakness generally in the economy. So, you know, we're looking at a lot of indicators right now that are showing some weakness and perhaps a little bit, you know, more heaviness, I think, uh, in the financial markets and in the economy overall. You mentioned some of those economic indicators. You can't ignore what's happening with inflation right now. Do you get a sense? Do you feel as though inflation is in the process of peaking or do we have a ways to go before we can get it under control? You know, Dom, uh, I think we still have some time. You know, when you look globally, you know, even in Japan, the UK, I mean, those those markets still haven't rolled over. Uh, you know, in the US here, I think, you know, inflation is going to be very persistent. It still remains sort of the, the predominant threat, I believe, to the economy and the financial markets. Um, and it's just because it's so pervasive. It's not in just one area. I mean, it's across consumer, it's across energy. Um, and frankly, you know, Unemployment still remains very low. Uh, so we have a very strong labor market. Um, companies have very strong pricing power. We've seen that throughout this earnings season. If that's the case, why is the economic narrative and the market effects so negative right now? It seems as though people are positioning for that recession. Yeah, well, um, I think, you know, as, as we look, you know, coming into 2023, um, people, when people look at the market, for example, the equity markets, um, there's competition in investment, right? You now look at a fixed income market where you're seeing yields move higher. And so as an investor, um, you know, some of that positioning is saying, hey, there are alternatives out there on the market. But frankly, I still think in the equity market, there are some some places to hide and some places I think that you can, you know, find ideas that will continue to grow in, in the foreseeable future. All right. Since you opened the door, Patrick, where yeah. are those places? What's your what, what kind of picks are you looking at? Yeah, sure. So, you know, when we came into this year, we were positioned, I think, pretty defensively in sectors like healthcare um, and in the some defensive consumer sectors. Um, but right now, you know, in the energy sector, I still like energy infrastructure. So when I look at, you know, um, you know, companies like energy product, um, you know, enterprise product partners, excuse me, um, you know, those are companies that have, you know, a very diversified portfolio, world class energy uh, assets in the NAT gas um, NGL pipeline space, you know, they pay a 7% dividend um, and have a very healthy balance sheet with, you know, a lot of, I think, demand um, and, and throughput for the foreseeable future. All right. Patrick Frizzetti with his stock picks out there. Enterprise products is top pick. We appreciate it. Have a nice Thanksgiving week. Yeah, you too, Dom. Thanks All for right. having me. All right. Right now, futures pointed to some modest losses at the opening bell. The Dow's implied lower by 75 points. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box comes up next. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.